Thank you so much um, for inviting me to this seminar. Um, gosh, we're in the wake of quite a traumatic um, election. <laughs> and, uh, and I want to situate my paper in the context of thinking about some of this aftermath. I mean, I was listening to the radio this morning and they're doing all that picking the bones of, the, of what's happened and uh, there is this, this, this sort of sense in which we need to look at the aspirational um, middle. And I think that this might link in to some of the issues that are raised by your paper, thank you very much for that, and also by mine. What is happening to the aspirations of young people um, of black minority ethnic heritage? Um, we can think, um, we really need to rethink widening participation in post-race times. I don't think that the discourse that we've been very comfortable with for the last 10 years works anymore in these new times. We've had 40 years of race equality legislation. Um, we have some of the most progressive policies in the whole of, of Europe in the UK. Um, and yet we have, you know, the Equality Act, we've had the incorporation of duties into our institutions, we have targets, we have access schemes, all are plenty. But yet, as we've seen from the data this morning, we still see this huge attainment gaps, we see gaps in admissions, we see gaps in outcomes, there are huge inequalities that are still there, despite all of that. So we really need to remap widening participation in these new terrain of post-race times. So what do I mean by post-race times? Well, this is the times in which we are, have a colorblind approach. There's an erasure of race. We don't talk about race anymore. We are seeing, you know, our institutions have accommodated difference. We see diversity as something that, that is something we celebrate. And as Dubois said, I don't know if you know the work of W. Dubois, but he said, you know, the color line really demarked the 20th century. And now we see that skin color, or we argue that skin color is no longer an impediment to equalities. We have Barack Obama. We're even talking about maybe even David Lammy or, you know, Chukamuna in the in, in the Houses of Parliament. So, you know, we are in different times, um, and what we have seen is this pernicious discourse um, backlash about multiculturalism, and so in these post-race times, we have this sense of white hurt. The white majority is the hurt party. We have had all these special equality um, legislations which have sort of given us a leg in, an unfair leg in. And this kind of backlash um, is something that also demarks this kind of post-race terrain that we're working in. That somehow equalities um, has worked for giving special advantage to certain groups, black and minority ethnic groups, and there's been an unfair disadvantage to the white um, working classes. And we see this very much in discourses around schools and, um, and you know, the difference between class and race and how it's played out. So that's on one hand, this whole reframing, post-race reframing. Then on the other hand, we see that the whole higher education landscape is also changing. We see that 
borders are now dissolving. We talk about hypermobility, the globalization of higher education, and indeed the commodification of higher education. These um, sense in which you know it is a marketplace, and um, uh, and of course it's marked by fees, and it's a huge industry. It's part of our GDP. It's how we um, raise money. Um, so it is a huge industry, and yet, um, you know, one of the things, this edgeless, borderless kind of institutions embodies the hopes and the dreams of the students. And I think this is very much what your paper picked up, John, you know, the way that, you know, the hopes and the dreams and desires of people from India, from Africa, from the BME communities here to go into higher education is absolutely phenomenal. The idea that it changes your life. And Elspeth Probin, um, a, a theorist in Australia, she talks about affective eduscapes. These are the emotions and the sense of feelings that are embodied in our institutions. So our institutions are not just places of targets, but they are places of emotions, of senses, how it embraces all those desires, but still commodifies it and makes money out of it. So we've got that, that way in which higher education landscape is changing. Um, there are no longer the traditional boundaries. There are new ways of, um, of, uh, of teaching and learning through social media. I don't know if you know about MOOCs, massive online courses, which, you know, in fact, I think the, the, the person who invented MOOCs is now set withdrawing from that, so you know, MOOCs are that anybody everywhere could have access to the top professors through free online courses. But that this institutes a kind of new elitism because the only ones who can afford the quality face-to-face -face teaching will be those who can pay thirty thousand pounds or more to be in the top universities, and the rest of the world will have this other. Yes, they'll have access to learning and teaching, but it won't be of that standard. So there is going to be a huge move towards increasing elitism in higher education. So these are the kind of landscapes that widening participation has to deal with or think about. And in our research in higher education, we so often um, are looking at the institutional focus but very rarely on identities, on social identities and interactions and how that plays out. And again, your paper did pick up on that. You know, there's, well, I was interested in the feedback because that's the point of interaction and how do the identities of the students and the identities of the staff meet. And I know that in the UK university sector, 87% of the staff are white in higher education. And yes, so we do have large numbers of black and minority ethnic students in relation to their population size going into higher education. But it still is remarkably as, what's the name of the guy in the BBC? He's called the BBC hideously white. Higher education yeah, still. Greg Dyke. Greg Dyke, yes. It still is hideously white spaces. And what do those spaces mean and how are they experienced by those students who are not white? That is the key issue that I want to unpack. So let me look at some of the issues. So I'm going to talk about some research that I've done, and it's in my new book, 
book, well, it's not so new, 2012, Respecting Difference, looking at race, faith, and culture, particularly for teacher educators. And in this research, we looked at um, the interaction between the tutors and the, um, and, the and the people on the PGC courses, which were primary, secondary, and post-compulsory. And in this research, um, which was in one institution, but looking at uh, over 50 members of staff um, and a student body that was 27% um, black and minority ethnic, um, these were some of the results that we found. And we divided the research up, and I, I want to think about, I'm going to tell you three different stories, if you like, about the research. One is that I'm going to look at recruitment, and then I'm going to look at issues around retention, and then issues around progression. And I think that those are the three areas that are really key to understanding differences um, that students experience. So here is a case study looking at the kind of affinity, if you like, between the aspirations to go into certain universities and colleges and the ex experiences around social capital and how that plays out. So here we have a situation where Ken, who is a, a young African-Caribbean young man, he was actually told um, by his college not to apply for a PGCE in a particular institution that we were studying, which was in the Russell Group category. So he was actually told African-Caribbean students will have difficulty getting in. He was told that you can apply, but you won't really get in, so don't even worry to apply, because this place is out of your reach. So this first hurdle of recruitment is really interesting, because on one side, you have this idea of what I call lack, the idea of lack or lacking. So he seemed to lack the sufficient cultural capital um, to be able to negotiate the, the institution. And um, if we really want to unpack how discriminatory and exclusionary practices work within our institutions, then we have to look at the way in which you know, the habitat or the sense of being in an institution makes you feel, as Bourdieu says, a fish out of water. And a lot of students go into certain places, they go for the interviews in certain places, and then they come out and they say, well, I actually, even if they offered me a place, I don't actually want to be there because I won't belong. I will, I will struggle there, being a fish out of water in the sense of how they feel if they could be part of those institutions. And I know a lot of students um, in other pieces of research I've done, uh, and my colleague Diane Ray, for example, looking at students in the Oxbridge University system who say, you know, even when they go there, that they want to leave very soon after. There's this hashtag, um, you know, I2M Oxford or I2M Cambridge, where the black and minority ethnic students are having campaigns to say, you know, it's just the everyday interactions of how they make me feel when I, I'm walking around, like, can I touch your hair, or is your father a terrorist, or, and these are jokes, and how it makes you not feel part of that, or haven't your parents worked very hard so that you can get here, you know, they must be cleaners or something, haven't you done well? So those kind of comments are make students feel isolated, unwanted, and like they don't belong. So this is a very powerful sense. But the lack, or the lacking, 
is a two-way process because not only do you feel like you don't belong, but you also take on what Franz Fanon calls the position of negritude, which is this misrecognition around your identity. So is there sense in which you feel as if you are the one who doesn't belong, as if you are the one who is not, cannot be part of that um, um, institution. And it's seen in critical race theory as doing a violence to yourself, a kind of violence that you say that you don't belong. Um, so we believe that our higher education system is a free and fair world, that everyone should have access to that world. Um, but then that sense of belonging, or should I even be there, is one side. But and also, there is the power of the gatekeepers. And there has been research to look at the sense in which you know, gatekeepers, at that point of the interview, um, you know, make really subjective decisions. And I know that Penny Jane Burke and Jackie McManus have done a piece of research where they looked at the, the um, actual interaction in the interview process where um, a young um, uh, Caribbean girl is being interviewed in an arts college and she says, you know, they ask her what music does she like, and she says hip-hop, and they snigger and they laugh and they go, you know, they, they, they think that this is not a real art form. Mind you, I watch young dancers over the weekend, did you see that? And they had hip-hop as, uh, as a dance form, it was, it was brilliant. Uh, and, uh, you know, and she didn't, she didn't, she couldn't talk about the plays that she, um, you know, Shakespeare plays, whatever, because she, her family didn't do those sort of things. And then they observed a young white kid who came in and was being all street and whatever, and they thought that that was cool and that he would make it in the institution. And even though he had lesser grades, he got the space. So, you know, those kind of decision-making processes at the point of gatekeeping are really subjective, and I don't know how you measure those, John. <laughs> but, you know, that, that they are powerful places um, and, and tell us a lot about how inequality plays out. So let's look at the issue of retention um, and see what happens there. So there is this idea, um, actually I just wanted to make one last point about the issue about lacking and lack. One of the things that, that we find with our students, and I'm doing work looking at migrant girls in schools, but I know it has a resonance in higher education, um, is about the mental health situations and conditions of our students in higher education and of our black and minority ethnic students in higher education. And I know I'm teaching a course at the moment and it is about, I would say, 30% black and minority ethnic students in, this isn't like, it's a, an MA course called Race, Gender and Social Justice, and about 30% are black and minority ethnic and the rest are white students, from international from all over the world. and. Um, and the black and minority ethnic students are largely third generation um, British born and every single one of them has asked for an extension. Every single one of them has emailed me with a crisis and feels that they're not good enough and that they don't know quite what to do in order to pass. I mean, they're even too frightened to begin the essay. Um, and it's only because I've given them an enormous amount of my own time that they are actually doing the essays. 
But if I am a member of staff, and they have all commented on this, that not a lot of other tutors would have done it, or have done it in the past. Mm. So it's really interesting that, you know, this kind of, what I witnessed is a kind of sense of, I mean, I've one students completely broken down, and they've all gone to the disability offices and, and asking for support there. So there's this, this, this kind of, um, uh, what I was saying, violence to the self that, you know, Bell Hooks, a black feminist um, theorist, she talks about what happens when you move to the other side of the track. She grew up in the southern USA, and she said there was a railway track. And when she crossed over that track, she was in another, um, you know, another world, and she went to university. And she says, when you cross over that track, it's really hard to come back and be part of your community again. And you lose a sense of yourself, a piece of yourself. And that makes it really hard to continue that journey because very few people understand the experiences that you have and can share that. And you know, another black feminist professor, um, Patricia Williams, she says, you know, what we have to do is keep alive in ourselves, in our hearts and in our souls, the way, the taste, the smells, the food of our community in order to survive in these hostile, different and alienating spaces where, you know, um, well, you might get chicken tikka masala in the um, canteen once a week, but that does not make a multicultural institution. So, you know, we need to keep alive, you know, other, <coughs> other ways of being and other ways of knowing in order to survive in those institutions. So what happens, under, you know, in terms of retaining students? And I'm not sure about the statistics on dropout rates, and institutions are quite loath to keep them. Um, but black and minority ethnic students do drop out. And in this piece of research, where we looked at the PGC um, national statistics on the courses, um, uh, black and minority ethnic students um, are more than twice as likely to drop out of their PGC courses than white students. Um, so they're very unlikely to finish half, 50%. I'll tell you the statistics in a minute. But about half of them do not finish the course um, compared to their white counterparts. So there's clearly, as you were also saying, in terms of degree qualifications, an issue. But actually dropping out and not finishing <coughs> to even be on your stats of, um, of, you know, is an issue. So. How do we retain the students? Well, here, in this case study here, um, the tutor called Dave said it would be unfair to accept Sam, who came from Nigeria. He had an engineering degree. He was a mature student. He had a lot of experience in mathematics. And, you know, there's a whole dearth of need for mathematics teachers. And so he would have been an ideal candidate. But this tutor called a white tutor, he said it would be unfair to accept Sam onto the course because they couldn't give him the time and the support that he would need to bring him up to the level of, of the course because he, you know, was an adult learner, you know, different kinds of experience. And Linda, who was also in the interview, um, to, you know, where Sam was asking to come into the college, she stressed, a young white woman, she was stressing that there are different routes that ethnic minority students come to a course, non-traditional routes. 
so that you know we should value whatever they bring. So here we have the two kind of discourses around widening participation. You know, they bring d difference and diversity, but can they make the grade with a differenting dif differential experience? So what does this tell us? Well, if we unpack what it means, it tells us how racism works through our kind of benign policies, our quality policies or positive action. So here we see that, you know, positive action, or Dave's, Dave's argument is really, you know, there, what, well, you know, Dave's argument is that there is a kind of sense of special pleading, like we shouldn't dilute the quality of the course by letting him onto the course. It's against meritocracy. And meritocracy is at the heart of our higher education institutions. You know, you get there because you deserve to be there. And, and so, you know, this measure of, um, you know, we don't think about what we call in officially prior learning, but actually prior learning is about your cultural capital. It's about your ability, where you've been to school, um, how you know how to network. Do you feel comfortable in institutions? All of this, for me, is prior learning. It isn't just, you know, your A-levels and whatever. It's about, you know, so the idea is that, you know, positive action, letting Sam in, would be against the kind of principles of meritocracy. And, you know, the whole idea of, um, of equality policies in our institutions seems to have got awry. All the good intentions of, um, of the idea of creating a level playing field where everyone you know, is raised up in that liberal democratic way so that we have a level playing field so that we give equal opportunities and that we kind of can balance out and then move forward from that point. That kind of um, ideal has been, I don't hijacked by our institutions. They so cleverly have incorporated the discourse around diversity and equalities into what Sarah Ahmed has called in her wonderful book, I don't know, on, on being included, about equalities in higher education. She says that they become speech acts, a performativity. So institutions now can perform equality. So they set targets, they have and I've sat on just about every single equality body there is nationally and institutionally. You know, we chew over statistics, we go over it, but nothing ever changes. But we tick all the boxes. And what she says, the institutions, they say they're good at equality, and therefore they are good at equality. And I think your point about the OU is very good. I've worked in a lot of new universities, um, and you know, there's lots of minority ethnic students in there. And they go, well, look, we've got loads of ethnic minority students because the, the idea of targets is all about access. So if they're in, hey, we're a multicultural institution. We're right on, and we have chicken tikka masala in the canteen. And you know, in fact, that was one of the policies when I first went to one institution: is can we get chicken tikka masala into the canteen <laughs> and a prayer room? Those are the two things. And then. If you've got chicken tikka masala, prayer room, <laughs> and a lot of black faces in your classroom, you're made. And so this idea, you know, of, and also, um, I call it the chocolate box approach, which is you've got lots of black and Asian faces on your publicity material. 
So I'm I'm on the front web page. I had to tell them to take it down. <laughs> um, and every institution, you know, um, and then there's this, you know, like one person from every country is on your publicity material. So this idea of saying is doing, and therefore you are good at equality, is a performativity. And it's a very clever performativity. It's a kind of technology of concealment. That's what we call it in theory. You know, a kind of concealment of the racism that's within your institution. Um, Sarah Ahmed talks about happiness. She's written a book on um, the promise of happiness. And she says, you know, you know we, we, are, we become happy, smiling faces. And we, we are allowed in these institutions once we remain happy. The moment you become unhappy or difficult or sore or angry, these are her words, that, you know, we become obstacles to that happiness. And therefore, you know, if you look at um, the amount of grievances that our students go, you know, um, take out and, and members of staff that have left, including me, um, you know, that's what happens. You begin to actually see that this performativity of equality isn't really isn't really something that, that is there. So it's, it is very crucial to the retention of our students. What time am I finishing? Quarter past? Quarter past, yeah. I want time for the You might want to give a bit of time. For yeah. I'm sure people will have a lot to say. Yeah. yeah. So looking at the third story that I want to unpack with you is about progression. And, and how do our students move through the courses? I was really interested about, again, you know, that you were looking at feedback, John, and, and yet, you know, it was still the point where you couldn't quite, quite nail it statistically. But qualitatively, I think there are huge issues around progression, which is how we move through the courses. So here is a case of Kalila. And Kalila was a young Muslim um, PGC student. And um, she was doing her placement in a school, and she had a tutor in the school who was supporting her, you know, as a kind of placement tutor. And um, she actually took out a grievance. This is how the case study came around against her tutor, because he was really being obstructive and being very difficult with her. And when he was questioned as to why he was difficult, he said very openly, his white male um, teacher in the school was her tutor. He said, Muslim women make poor teachers. They are too passive and acquiescent to teach effectively. And of course, Kalila is, you know, she's too lenient with the students. She's like soft, you know, this is an urban school in London. She couldn't really make the grade, he thought. So he insisted this was an accurate assessment of all Muslim women teachers. And he admitted he was harder on her for this reason, because he was really bring, going to bring her up to standard. It was good for her. It was tough love that he was giving her. It wasn't racism, it wasn't sexism, it was tough love. This is how he saw it. Um, so, what can we unpack and learn from this situation? Firstly, think about how race, faith and culture is lived on and within the body. By being a Muslim woman, she was a hijabi, she wore her hijab, um, you know, the symbolic nature of wearing a hijab, I don't know, I used to wear one, but I don't anymore. And partly, and, and, and other colleagues of mine who have had, you know, Muslim men with beards and 
taken it off because it's too hard to navigate our institutions. And, too, and I don't think I'll even be a professor if I was wearing a hijab now, many years ago. It's a long story, but I won't go there. Um, but, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, race and culture and faith are written on the body and through the body. And in these times of Islamophobia, the dress, the Muslim woman's dress, has become overdetermined. There is so much meaning. There is, um, you know, attributed to her dress. And there's a sense in which it symbolizes the barbaric other in our midst. And I don't know if you've got any friends who wear it, but if you just, they'll tell you how you're spat at, how you, it's pulled off, um, kids who wear them in the school, they're bullied. I mean, it's like open season. And the media and our politicians have given us open season to make this kind of comments. And he, this tutor here, felt no sense in which this was wrong. He was going to help her because, of course, Muslim women are under the thumb of their barbaric um, families. And um, he felt he had a legitimate right to comment and judge her. And he had no respect for her own spirituality and her own faith and her own reasons for wearing her dress and for being a Muslim. Often we see Muslim women as victims in need of saving. There is this, uh, there's this um, post-colonial theorist called Gayatri Spivak, and she talks about brown, um, white men saving brown women from brown men, <laughs> which is the sense in which you, know, you need saving from your own by the white knight on the horse um, who's going to come in and um, wreak havoc in Afghanistan <laughs> in order to save you. Um, so there's this sense in which you're weak um, but acquiescent um, as a Muslim woman. So he teaches her a lesson. And what um, Nirmal Puar, who's another colleague of mine, has written a book called Space Invaders, um, looking at the civil service and being uh, white in the British, being black in the white British civil service. And she calls Space Invaders being a black body out of place. And that places historically become sedimented for certain bodies to occupy and not others. And if we think about our higher institutions, they've become historically sedimented as elite white institutions, not for certain bodies to occupy. And therefore, there's that sense of belonging. So, um, what can we do about it? Well, the sense in which um, thinking, what a lot of the tutors were saying in, um, in, our, PG, in our research in the PGC course, they kept saying, we have no time to talk about these issues. We know we want to talk about equality issues, um, but there is no time. There's so many, you know, Ofsted's coming in, we're being examined, we're being looked at, we've got paperwork to do. How can we, you know, find time to talk about equality? And I've just come back from a lecture tour in the United States where I was talking in many schools and they were saying, you know, we've got to have difficult conversations. But how do we have difficult conversations? We have no time because we're so busy. So there is a sense of how do we create safe spaces in the increasing bureaucratization and marketization of our institutions and the increasing surveillance within our institutions. And so here, um, one of the students in our research uh, talked to newly qualified teachers as well. And Simon uh, was a science graduate 
Um, so he had done, you know, all his three or four year um, undergraduate degree, and now he was doing a PGC where he was going to become a science teacher. And he was doing, he had, he had been working in a school um, with a high proportion of black boys. He said it was a Catholic school. And he says, and he was really, he came to our diversity seminar because he really was, wanted to understand multiculturalism. And he said, you know, black boys, and he shared this with the group, are underachieving because they're just not suited to academic work. The same genes, because he's a scientist, that affect your um, IQ affect your skin color. He truly believed this was the case. And he said it really innocently to, to the group. And who told him to do that? They completely jumped on him, the other <laughs> students. Uh, one other student agreed with him. She said, well, yeah, you know, look at the um, Olympics and whatever. All the 100-meter uh, runners are white, uh, sorry, black, and all the swimmers are white. You know, so there's this sense that there's a, you know, a physical prowess that would, again, you know, that kind of dialect between the mind and the body. The black people are more prone to the body and not the mind. So there was this sense. These are, these are newly qualified teachers. These people have done degrees. They have never been challenged on issues of equality through their whole course as undergraduates and as postgraduates. And the tutors were saying to us, that when they do raise issues, they avoid it because they don't want to be taken up on agreements. Because particularly issues around um, Islamophobia and the, with the Muslim students, they did not want to go there. They would actually shut the conversation down if they were having a discussion in the class um, around teaching Muslim students or whatever. They didn't, and they didn't have the resources themselves to know how to teach uh, the, te the teacher educators that they were teaching. So they felt out of sorts. The students were all angry and sort of boiling and you know, the black students and then the white students were going, Well, listen, you know, they have ideas like this. Um, there was another another student in another somewhere else that I went to was not a part of this research, but you know, she was saying there's a difference between boys and girls learning is that boys had grommets in their ears. Have you heard this one? I don't know. But there's a lot of ideas out there. <laughs> Let me challenge you. <laughs> Um, anyway, so um, so how do we create a safe space where we don't engage in this nature of white hurt? Because he was so hurt that he shut down. And, you know, how do we find the space and how do we create a sense of, of safety? Now, in critical race theory, um, Leonardo Zeus and others have argued that actually you can't create a safe space for black and minority people to participate in this kind of dialogue, race dialogue, because they always ends up saying, well, say, oh, you're black and minority, you tell us what we should do. And this becomes a problem because they say there's a symbolic violence in this race dialogue because you're set up as the expert, number one. But it's always because you're in a racist society, a white supremacist society, uh, where whiteness is never named, but is always present, because you're in this society, any dialogue around race becomes a kind of symbolic violence. You are doing a violence to yourself. And sometimes when you're in those settings, you don't even know why you're getting pissed off as a person of color. 
you're always being asked to justify or tell or help um, them understand what it's like. But, you know, you're not actually deriving much from that, so about telling your story. So this, the space can be oppressive to black minority ethnic people. It can be sort of informed by a sense of colorblindness. But race is reformed in this interaction for the um, people of color. So it becomes a very, very difficult thing to negotiate. Um, but I think towards thinking about solutions, because we don't want to end on these notes, do we? We want to think about how we can move towards a kind of critical pedagogy for higher education educators, for those, those very crucial members of staff. I've just come from America where they call them faculty. Um, uh, language is really important. <laughs> um, yeah, so how do we move towards kind of diversifying our pedagogy as, as people that work in higher education, as practitioners or as researchers? So we need to ask ourselves three questions. What do we mean by equality for students in challenging multicultural situations? What do we mean by equality? Do we mean access? Do we mean targets? What do we really mean? Now, equality, as I was saying earlier, is a holy grail of our widening participation of and our institutions of ideas of social justice and liberal democracy. But it's a troubled water, really troubled, because you know we have this sense of um, of um, how important it is to have like shared values, and this is going to be something that the government is going to really be driving home. What do we mean by shared values? What do we mean by equality? And the argument is, is that it's a coda for whiteness. Whose values are we sharing? Have we had equal participation in creating those values? These are important questions. And then we see legislation as the key remedy. And it's a negative kind of remedy, where, you're, where they set up a comparator. And the comparator is the white male. And you're always being compared to that person in our legislation. So there's a sense in which there's a kind of difficulty in the actual nature, the starting point of our legislation. And then where do we situate ourselves? Am I an anti-racist? What does being an anti-racist mean, for example? Um, you know, I want to just stress that we've moved in different times through our quality. We've gone from assimilation to social cohesion, which is about assimilation again, and then back to a difference in diversity and, and to human rights and talking about rights and legislation. We've had a whole plethora of different approaches to equalities. And where do we stand and how do we begin to separate and name ourselves in that kind of struggle? And then, oh, sorry. And then what are our principles of professional engagement? I think that these are really important questions. How do we arrive at our principles of professional engagement? You know, what is the fire in your belly? What makes you angry? What pisses you off? You know, and how do you bring about change with that kind of energy that you feel? And one of my favorite books is by somebody called, it's now out of print, I don't know why, because I think it's a brilliant book, by somebody called uh, Kathleen Casey, and it's called I Answer With My Life. And she looks at the teacher nuns, Jewish edu women educators, they're all females, 
um, and they all work, and black African-American women, and they all work in very tough inner city schools. And she talks about the transformative agency of these women and their praxis, how they work with reciprocal relationships. And they use language and the oral traditions in those communities to actually work within those communities. And they recognize their own power and authority in dealing with the, um, the people that they're working with and the students that they're working with. And she calls it acts of love that there is love in those interactions. We don't talk about love in Wyoming participation. And finally, what kind of social and political and cultural change do we want to achieve? And here I turn to Paolo Freire, one of my favorite people of all time, who talks about um, the conscious, he's a Brazilian educationist, and he talks about the consciousization of new intellectuals. How do we create new intellectuals and the consciousness of those new intellectuals? And he says, you know, struggles create the new intellectuals and the activists. He says, you know, critical consciousness is not a prerequisite for struggle, but arises from engagement. You become an activist. You don't, you're not born with it. So it, this is how it evolves. So education can be a liberatory site, and it can be um, a site, a field of knowledge production where everybody labors for change. And I want to end with this um, quote from Bell Hooks, um, the black feminist writer. She's written a really good book on, um, on education. It's called Teaching to Transgress. And here is a quote from her book where she talks about this kind of idea of, the, uh, of how we can move forward. And she talks about engaged pedagogy. She says, the academy is not paradise. God, we all know that, don't we? Um, but learning is a place where paradise can be created. The classroom, with all its limitations, remains a location of possibility, a place to demand for ourselves and our comrades an openness of mind and heart that allows us to face reality, to move beyond boundaries, to transgress. This is education as the practice of freedom. I want to leave you with that quote. Thank you very much.